Okay. Well, I, uh, I've been spending time in grade seven this year, along with kindergarten, which has been new for me. And some of their curriculum has been really interesting to me. Of course, it's stuff that I learned way back when, uh, roughly the same age, things like adding fractions and growth of a plant, elements of a short story. Um, lots of it learned, most of it forgotten. Uh, but the curriculum that's been the most fascinating to me has been the social studies curriculum. The grade sevens are, are learning the early history of the European settling of Canada. And that's a part of history that I was not as familiar with as I thought I was. And it's been really illuminating. And nothing has been more interesting in all of that than the role of the First Nations people in, in early Canadian history. It's been fascinating to me. Since Canada is so Eurocentric, the stories of the First Nations people became afterthoughts. Mere curiosities in the grand scheme of the French-English conflict and confederation and railroads and all that stuff. This, however, is an enormous shame, I believe. We have so much to learn from those people and about those people, and yet we were and continue to be unwilling to listen. It's a shame that their stories aren't more well-known and that their lifestyle isn't more well-known. In fact, the more I learn about First Nation lifestyle pre-contact, that's before the Europeans showed up, the more I'm convinced that their way of life actually makes way more sense than the scientifically enlightened and technologically advanced and socially refined lifestyle that was forced upon them. I'm not sure if that sounds controversial to you. I, I don't think it should or needs to be. Um, and I'll explain myself here in a, in a, the, over the next couple minutes. See, whereas Europeans ravaged and plundered the earth that God created, and it's really hard to argue otherwise, Consuming resources for the purposes of war and wealth, um, First Nations people respected and cared for the natural world. They used only what was necessary, and nothing was wasted. Uh, that is partly being idealistic, but not really. Th that was their way of life. That was one of the chief identifying factors of, of their way of life, was that they only used what they needed, and they didn't waste. Whereas Europeans were ruled by corrupt kings and a social class system determined merely by wealth and birth, things that don't matter at all, uh, with rich white men making de decisions to benefit themselves and other rich white men, First Nations people were governed on the principles of true equality. Women were held in high esteem and were enormously influential. Every person played a role and every role was celebrated and decision-making was shared to the benefit of everyone in the tribe, not just the chiefs which is kind of how the European system worked. Whereas Europeans sought to conquer and claim everything they could see, buying up land to profit king and flag, First Nations people understood that everything was a gift to be used wisely and to be shared. Land could not be owned, for all things belonged to the Creator. Owning land was as foreign to them as owning a cloud would be to us. Now, I realize that these are um, slightly idealized portrayals of First Nations culture, and I rec recognize fully that no society in the history of humanity has ever been perfect. Let's just get that out of the way. I'm not saying we need to go back to tribal lifestyle. But these are the basic tenets of life in their society. Was it perfect? Well, of course not. Most significantly, they didn't know Jesus, which makes it very hard to be perfect if you don't know Jesus. Of course, those who did know Jesus, the Europeans who came in, uh, somehow believed their, these people to be subhuman and people to be wiped out, used, abused, and discarded. 
So the people who knew Jesus didn't do a good job of knowing Jesus. Honestly, if you look into the history, very poor record. And that record continued into this century and, and still lingers like a phantom today, to be honest. The more I learn about the truth and reconciliation movement, the more I am absolutely for it and think it's important and the church should have a role in it. So you may be wondering why Chris is preaching a sermon on the injustices performed on indigenous people some 400 years ago. That's not an act, is it? We're supposed to be studying Acts. I don't remember hearing about the Iroquois in the book of Acts. I don't remember that. Where is he going with this? And that is a good question to ask yourself of anything I'm saying at any point. What is he saying and is it good and is it right? It's just that as I was studying our passages for this week and next week, because this is kind of a two-part thing, I wanted it to be one sermon, but it was going to be way too, too enormous. So I broke it up. And as I studied the passages for this week and next week, I couldn't help comparing what we're about to read regarding the practical functioning of the early church to the way that our Western society functions. And they are completely, utterly, absolutely different. I think we'll see. They they are not comparable in any way. And when I compare the pagan indigenous people to the Christian Europeans... It's actually the indigenous way of life that compares more favorably to the kingdom of God. That may sound like a big controversial statement to you. If that sounds far-fetched, then I recommend we check our Eurocentric point of view at the door with all of our capitalism and our individualism and our obsession with material possessions. I suggest we check those things at the door since those are things that need to be checked at the door anyways. Those are the things that Europe wrought, and those are not the things the church cares about, so they should be checked anyway. Those are things of the Western world, not the things of the kingdom of God. And so they're not going to be useful as we study this passage anyway, so we might as well get rid of them. It's a normal response to the kingdom of God to be convicted about how our life is being lived and how the world looks nothing like the kingdom. Well, maybe a bit like the kingdoms of maybe the Cree people or the Haudenosaunee people. But even that, I mean, I totally recognize that's imperfect. But I want to challenge at every turn that I can the idea that our society is good and right and looks anything like God wants it to look like. Can we please agree that our world is broken and corrupt and that the Western world in particular has severe drawbacks to it? That what I'm saying, comparing indigenous peoples to North America is not actually that controversial? That we have much to learn from them? Good. Let's move on then. Because I think what we're going to read in Acts, the reason I bring all this up, what we're going to read in Acts 4 looks totally different from the world we live in and looks an awful lot like a culture that was here before we were. So let's read Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, for they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Short and sweet passage. Does this passage sound familiar? Does it sound like anything we've read in Acts before? Yeah, it does. It sounds an awful awful lot like the end of Acts 2. Acts 2 ended with a very similar account of the life of the early church, highlighting their unity, their commitment to sharing possessions, and their powerful work and witness for Jesus. 
Acts 2 follows the arrival of the Holy Spirit and Peter's powerful witness that results in tremendous growth. Fast forward to Acts 4, and today's passage follows another powerful event that demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit. This time, it was the healing of the crippled beggar, as well as Peter's powerful witness in the face of persecution. Both Acts 2 and Acts 4 finish by emphasizing the powerful life of sacrifice that the followers devoted themselves to. Powerful presence of the Spirit leads to powerful works. Powerful works lead to a powerful witness. Powerful witness leads to a powerful community, and powerful community leads back to the beginning of it all, the powerful presence of the Spirit. It's like this big cycle in these first chapters of Acts, a cycle that continues unfolding even now to Clyde, Alberta, some 2,000 years later. So the cycle continues on and on from this world into eternity, this big cycle of the Spirit's power manifesting itself amongst the people. And right at the core of all that power comes a special emphasis on the devaluing of the most powerful idols of their day, idols that we've spent a lot of time talking about in our series on Luke, the idols of pride and profit, and power, and prestige. Mammon, the god of wealth, may rule the Roman world, not to mention the Canadian world, but Mammon has absolutely no power or authority here in the kingdom of God. He does not rule here. He has no power. Here in the kingdom, there is a force at work much stronger than selfish desire. That force, made possible through the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the force of, here's a Greek moment for the day, cardia mia. Say that with me. Cardia. Kaisaiki. Mia. If you read the verse that we just read, those four Greek words appear. Cardia, like cardio, the heart. Kai means and. Psyche, you can probably guess what that means. The mind. And Mia means one. One in heart and mind. That's cardia, kaisaiki, mia. And Beware, I'm going to say that a lot, so you might as well learn what it means now. Being of one heart and mind. It is the unstoppable force of a group of men and women committed to the depths of their soul to see the love of God made manifest in their world. They were of one heart and of one mind. And it was a heart and a mind, a cardiacysychemia, that were singularly focused on God's will being done and the kingdom arriving on earth as it is in heaven. They were of one heart and one mind. That's what their heart was focused on. That's what their mind was trained to do. Bring the kingdom to earth. Show love to God and show love to others. This is truly one of the most beautiful and inspiring passages of the Bible to me. I live my life and I engage with fellow pastors with the understanding that the single most important calling the church is called to is unity. That nothing is more important than being unified. Or if you are disunified, you cannot love one another. And if we have no love, we have no message, we have no mission. The single most important thing is unity. And this passage shows what that looks like really beautifully. It's the ongoing real-life example of Paul's words in Philippians 2, where he says, Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. How beautiful is that? Or Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body, that's us, one spirit alive in us, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. One, 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 one. Unity, togetherness. Or Romans 15, 
May God help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the church, to be unified in love. So look at some of the words used here. Agreeing wholeheartedly, working together, united, binding yourselves, complete harmony, joining together, cardiacysychemia. Do you hear the language of Luke and Paul? Do you see the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe the blessings of the Father God? Do you understand the purpose statement of the followers of Jesus? A unity made possible by the love of the Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A unity that brings him glory and makes him known. A unity that realizes the sacred importance of true equality. That in the family of God, all are brothers and sisters, and that no sister should be hungry or vulnerable if there is a brother who has more than he needs. If we are a family, if we are united as brothers and sisters, nobody should be in need. That doesn't make any sense. If I loved just Zoe at the expense of Tegan, I may be a good parent to one, but if I'm not a good parent to the other, I'm not a good parent at all. Right? A unity not based on liking one another, a unity not based on agreeing on every little thing, a unity not simply based on the fact that we attend a worship service together every Sunday morning. Those aren't the marks of unity. We don't need to like each other all the time. It just, by the way, it just so happens I do like you. Just make that clear. Um, We don't need to agree on every little fine point and every little, we don't have to have all the same moral linings up. The early church didn't. They argued all the time. But we cannot fail in this thing, this one thing. We need to have a unity made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ and through the powerful guidance of his Holy Spirit. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. It's the kind of unity that comes when soldiers fight together or when sports teams win championships together. Oh, how I long for that day. (laughs) (laughs) Or when a family overcomes suffering together. Because that's what the Holy Spirit forms in us, comrades in arms, just like in battle, fighting to advance his kingdom through love and grace and endurance. We are teammates, just like we see here, relying on each other's strengths and forgiving each other's weaknesses in order to claim victory for us, no, for our coach. We are brothers and sisters who support and encourage and challenge each other when death and disease and pain and persecution inevitably arrive at our doorstep or the doorstep of our brother or sister. And so that is the beauty of Acts 4. That's the true power of these broken peasants and prostitutes, farmers and fishermen, landowners and widows, nobodies and everybodies. These are just common, regular people, broken people called to something greater. And that's the true power of this collection of broken individuals, that whoever they were, whatever their personal history was, wherever they came from in in society and in life in general, once they met Jesus, they became mia, one in both heart and mind. And again, it's not just that they were a community, it's that they were a community with a purpose. I was at the Oilers game on Tuesday. What an Oilers game to be at, they won Mm -hmm. 7-1. Angie and I and the girls and her sister and nephew, and actually Lisa and Yellow were at that game too. I got to run into them. We were at that game, and the feeling you have at a sports game when your team is winning in their home arena, the togetherness you have, and it starts with the anthem. The only time 
I'm ever interested in the national anthem is during sports. I don't know what that says about me. It's the only time I care. All these voices singing together, and then we all cheer together, and, and we leave the arena high-fiving strangers. And that's, I am convicted by the fact that I see that unity there often, more often than I see in the church. And that's my fault. I'm not blaming anyone for that. So they, Oilers fans have a common purpose. That's what unites them. They are just a community, but a community with a mission. How much more true is that for the church? We're not just a community. We're not just a social gathering club. Nothing wrong with social gathering clubs, but we are not that. We're not just that. We're not just a community. We're a, we're a community with a purpose, a community with a mission, a shared mission, a community with a fire-like love that we and they could not help but spread. Which brings us to something crucial that Luke is obviously trying to get us to understand. What was the main way that their unity took form? What was the obvious sign that the family of God was unique from the world? Absolutely. The proof that they were cardiacai psychemia was that they freely gave to one another. They shared everything they had. Their expression of unity was that none of them claimed any of their property as their own, and they held everything in common. That was how they showed the Holy Spirit was in them. They gave what they had to benefit one another. There are other ways too, obviously. But Luke keeps coming back to the fact that the believers, when united, gave all that they had to one another. They shared openly. Now, an important distinction. And I'm going to use some language that, that may chafe up, up against some of us, and that's understandable. I'm going to use it anyway. This was more like an idealized sort of compassionate socialism than a kleptocratic communism. Socialism, if it's run by somebody who cares about their people, I, I don't honestly see what's wrong with it. It's just that what was wrong with it is there's nobody who does that. In, in the world. There's no leader who is pure and honest enough and has enough integrity to take the socialist model and make it work in a non-corrupt way. It's just not humanly possible. Um, it's not a socialism led by an easily corruptible government, but by a compassionate father. He's the one in charge. He's the, God is the one running all this through his Holy Spirit. And so the people participating in it, nobody was forced or compelled to give up their property. They, the disciples didn't walk up to each family and say, so, you're going to sell that house or what? You're going to give up that mule because we need some cash? Nobody was forced to do this. They willingly forfeited their claims to goods and to property for the benefit of the whole. And that doesn't look like capitalism to me. It's actually, frankly, the exact opposite of capitalism, which we love in the West, but which is so broken and ugly. It, it looks a lot more like socialism. Not communism, but a really well-operated form of socialism. They understood that all things are a gift from their God, and all things belong to him, and all things can be used to show love to him and to others. All things. They understood that it was not acceptable for one person to not have enough when someone else had more than enough. And so they gave freely and honestly because they were cardia kaisaiki mia, one in heart and mind. It should be noted that the economic situation in Jerusalem at that time was not very strong for a long time. The area was in a near constant state of recession, thanks to famines and to conflicts with Rome. 
Rome would often oppress Jerusalem and the area harshly because they would constantly uprise against Rome. And so the church was a movement amongst poor people that appealed to poor people. Who did Jesus spend all his time with? The outcasts, the poor people, right? And that's who he called his disciples to go to as well. That's a movement among the impoverished, the outcasts, people with no money. So if you have a movement among people with no money, it's hard to get money if you need money. It, there was not a lot of disposable income amongst the church members. Plus, Jerusalem had a high population of elderly Jews who had come to live out their last days in the holy city. There's nothing wrong with that, but they didn't have a lot of money, and they couldn't work any longer. Moreover, many people in the early church likely experienced economic boycotting and discrimination based on their faith in the cult of Jesus. Their neighbors would ostracize them and boycott them because of what they believed. Therefore, even though there were wealthier members of the church, like the case study we saw here, Josephus, the case study we're going to look at next week of Ananias and Sapphira, and what a bombshell case study that's going to be. Look forward to that one. Um, they were rich people. So there were wealthy people in the church, people with means. But you'd better believe that most of the people who behaved as Acts 4 suggests did so out of a state of poverty rather than a state of comfortable excess. They didn't have much, but what they had, they gave anyway. These are people who took seriously the call of John the Baptist, who in Luke 3 said, the man with two tunics should share with the man who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. They took that to heart. These are people obeying the teachings of their Lord, who warned the rich young ruler in Luke 18 about the challenge it is for the self-reliant wealthy to enter the kingdom. The same Lord who said simply and bluntly in Luke 12, sell your possessions and give to the poor. And it doesn't get much more blunt than that. Sell what you have and give to the poor. And so we're given a hero to emulate. A man who becomes increasingly important in the book of Acts, and that's Josephus. No, not Josephus. Joseph. Or Barnabas. Which means son of encouragement. What a great nickname to have. Anytime you see Bar in a name, by the way, in an Israelite name, that means son. So Barabbas, who was released in place of Jesus, I forget what his name means, but he's son of something. Son of a gun, probably. Um, <laughs> Barnabas is son of encouragement. Uh, Bartholomew means son of Tholomew. <laughs> um, but anyway, Joseph was a Levite who sold a field and placed the earnings under the authority of the, of the apostles. Under Old Testament law, this is kind of interesting, Levites were not supposed to have any land whatsoever. The Levites were the temple servants. They weren't to own land. So either that law became old-fashioned and wasn't being followed anymore, which we kind of know is true because Jeremiah the prophet was a Levite and he owned land, and that was way before this. So either that or uh, some people think that the land that Barnabas sold was actually his burial plot. Um, he gave that up and gave the money to the church. Whatever the case... It's obvious to us that he is a positive example of the value of giving generously and honestly, especially in light of the negative example that we will study next week. There's a direct contrast between Joseph and next week. Joseph's actions were utterly selfless. He didn't do it to be recognized. He did it because he recognized that nothing he owned really belonged to him in the first place. Westerners don't like to hear that. We like to hear, I worked hard for this and it's mine. We don't like to hear the pastor get up to the pulpit and say, no, it's not yours. You worked hard, but it's not yours. You don't get it. You don't get to claim it. It doesn't belong to you. It's God's. He recognized that nothing he owned really belonged to him. So he returned the land to its true owner, God. 
He did so willingly. He did so cheerfully and sacrificially in order to care for those in need as an act of love. He is obviously a role model to each of us, myself included for sure. And as we'll see next week, he became a very tough act to follow. And now here's where I need to make a caveat. I need to make this caveat lest I become obviously this huge hypocrite, which I always am to some degree when I preach. I, I need to make this caveat. Is every Christian called to sell everything they have and redistribute... Redistrib- redistrib- <laughs> Let's start again. Is every Christian called to sell everything they have and give the earnings, earnings to those in need? <laughs> Let me try that again. Is every Christian called to sell everything they have and give their earnings to those in need? Are you called to sell land and send the proceeds to Haiti? Are you called to offer your property rent-free to a lonely senior citizen? Are you convicted to sell your extra vehicle to a family in need for dirt cheap? Are you being asked to liquidate your savings account and give it to the mustard seed? Well, I don't know. Are you? It's not for me to tell you. Are you being convicted of those things? Because if you are, you better do them. If you are, follow the example we're given here and give graciously in a way that harms you to some degree. That's what sacrifice is. It, It means you have less of something you want so somebody else has something they need. I'm not telling you you need to do this and I don't believe Acts is either. I don't believe Luke is saying that. He's not saying you must do what Joseph did. You must do what the early church did. I I don't believe that's what's happening here. But I'm always hesitant to water down these lessons by saying not everyone needs to give all they have to the poor. Because as soon as I say that, I hear the sigh of relief that comes out of my own mouth. I'm letting myself off the hook. Why am I letting myself off the hook? Why do I water down this teaching by saying, no, we don't need to do this? Is that more perfect of me to do? Or is it more perfect of me to say, you know what? Maybe we should be emulating this. I'm not going to say you need to. Certainly I haven't done it yet. Angie and I haven't given up our house and we haven't done any of that. I'm not saying you need to, but why do I feel I need to water it down? Why would I water down the generosity we're called to exhibit? Especially when that extreme generosity is the marker of this radical unity that we can find in the name of Jesus. So it's a tension for me to teach this. It is. I I wrestle with it. Who am I to tell you that you need to give more freely? Who am I to tell you to do that? But here's the tricky question. Who am I to tell you that you don't need to give more freely? These words matter, not my words. And these words are saying it's a good thing to do. The examples we're given are pretty clear. And the examples we're going to look at next week should really fill our hearts with fear. It's very convicting and terrifying. So... Again, look forward to that. In other words, no, you don't need to give like the early church did. Joseph gave willingly. But yes, you and I absolutely do need to consider it. We are all called to understand that we are blessed in order to bless. We are all called to care for those in need. No excuses. Care for those in need. You don't have any reason not to. How much you give, however, is not for me to say. You need to listen to the Holy Spirit for that. If we are truly cardia kai psyche mia, one in, in heart and mind, we will give freely to those in need because we are a unified body. And if one part of the body suffers, the whole body is weakened. They gave because they were one. They gave because they loved God and each other passionately and selflessly. 
They gave because they were mighty in faith and in unity. Which is why Luke throws that reminder in there, right in the middle of all this selfless giving talk. Reminding of why we are unified. In verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. That's their mission. That's why they gave. Because God was doing great and mighty things among them and their witness was strong and effective because of it. That's why they gave. What you own is not your own. What you have is yours to share. We are all in this together and we are called to give freely to those in need. Giving does not feel like a major sacrifice when we realize that God owns our possessions. That's from the author of one of my commentaries, Ajith Fernando. So I'll say it again. Giving does not feel like a major sacrifice when we realize that God owns our possessions and not us. So as I wrap up, in conclusion, in other words, I want to look back to the comparison between the indigenous societies and the Western societies. Not with an understanding that we should become like those peoples, but with an understanding that what we accept as normal in our society is very not normal, and there are better ways. So let's look at the comparison. One consumes and conquers. The other shares and cares. One is dominated by social and financial inequality. The other ensures that all are given a voice and cared for in the same way. One saw land as something that belonged to individuals and to nations to be taken and to be owned. The other saw land as something belonging to the creator to be used for the common good. Sounds a lot like Joseph, doesn't it? I think our society would look more like Acts 4 if we had learned from the First Nations rather than subjugating them and eradicating them. There is real power in the selfless giving of the early church, a power experienced even today in those of us who are cardia kaisaikimia, one in heart and mind. If we are one in heart and mind, we will continue to be one in need and provision as well. If somebody is in need, we are all in need. If somebody gives, we are all giving. That's the lesson of Acts 4. One in heart and mind, completely unified to the benefit of those around us, our neighbors. That's why we sang... Um, Take my life and let it be earlier. Uh, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. That, I mean, that's one of six verses, six verses of things that we give that are offered to him because he's worth it and, and we are worth nothing except in him. Six verses of that, that's just one of them. So I appreciate what Tom said during offering that there are other ways to give besides just your money. And by the way, if everybody in the church, if everybody took all they had and sold it, then nobody would have anything and we would be in just as much need as before. So do with that as you will. But I don't want to water, water down the message that they were unified and because they were unified, they gave and because they gave, they were unified. There's this ongoing cycle of generosity that when they gave generosity, they received unity. They received the thing that the church is called to do and to be together in heart and mind for the glory of God and for his kingdom. My last words are these, by the way. Here's where I want to take off my preacher hat and be a person who thanks you. Um, for as Tom mentioned, uh, we recognize that what I just preached in this sermon, you guys do for Angie and I and our family. We recognize that we are able to keep a roof over our head because you give selflessly. And I recognize as, as I preach this sermon, I stand here and I point my finger and I say, give more, give more, you should give more. I absolutely realize how much you already give. 
and we are very deeply thankful and very appreciative that you do give. We are, we are the recipients of your generosity, and we, we know that, and we're thankful for it. We are not in desperate poverty in any way, and that is because each of you gives graciously and generously, so thank you. We appreciate you for that, and I'm thankful that we are unified in the blessings that come from selfless giving. May we all continue to give, and may we all grow in our experience of cardiacysychemia, one in heart and mind, as a reward from our Father. Let's pray. Jesus, as always, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would bind us closer together, that we would become more and more unified in our, in our minds, not just, not just that we would agree on everything all the time, but that we would be committed to approaching our disagreements with unity. I pray that we'd be unified in purpose, um, unified in our hearts, that we would all love the things of, of you and your kingdom, Jesus, and we would all reject the things in the world that don't look anything like your kingdom. Please, Father, make us more unified, not for our sake, but for your sake and for the sake of your kingdom. I thank you um, that you do bless us so abundantly. There's so much that we have that we don't need. We don't even recognize this all the time, but we do thank you for those things, Father. And I pray that each of us, um, beginning with me and, and to everyone here, that we would continue to give sacrificially in ways that, that actually hurt us even, uh, so that others can have their needs met and can know you, Father. Help us to give freely. Help us to be unified uh, strongly. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, <laughs> next week's a doozy. I'm real pumped and nervous <laughs> to preach about Ananias and Sapphira. It is really a mirror image, mirror reflection, everything here. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. So it's not next week. It's the week after that, that we'll get into Ananias and Sapphira. I have no idea what next week's sermon will be about. So that's, that's, uh, exciting to me as well, but have a great week, everyone. <laughs>